Morning, everyone. Hey, it, it is really wonderful to see you here. We have a great day planned. Uh, God's presence is here. There's going to be a, a message from the Bible that Luke's going to bring that is just powerful. It's life-changing. And, and we're going to have life-changing worship as well. Worship that is going to uh, just draw our hearts to focus on heaven. And, you know, when we talk about the presence of God, what we're really, what we're really wanting is God. We love his presence because we love him. It's not like we're, we're looking for an experience, but we do want the experience of his presence, but we want it because we love him. Just like when you have a family member, a brother or a sister or one of your kids that hasn't been home for a long time, and you just long to be with them. And when Thanksgiving dinner comes, Thanksgiving comes and they come home, you're just so happy because you want to be with them. And so... Um, Yeah, that's, uh, Father, let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your presence. Thank you for your love for us. And we just want to express that we love you. And we long for you to reveal more and more of yourself here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my name is Van Cochran. I'm the senior leader here at the church. And again, welcome. Uh, If you're new here, there's a gift for you out in the atrium. encourage you to stop by and pick that up. We're, We're just really happy that you're here. And, um, and, and glad that you chose to come and worship with us today. Now, at the same time, I would say that there are Connect cards at, in the front of the chair, back of the chair in front of you. And if, if you've never done it, or if, even if you're new, if you've never, though, though, if you've never done it, grab one of those cards, fill it out, drop it in the offering, or you can drop it in one of the offering boxes on the wall at the two main entrances. We have one on each side. There. So, hey, just a couple of things to draw your attention to. Next weekend here at our church is what, what um, in the youth student ministry and the children's ministry we call Move Up Sunday because this is the time, this is the week that as kids uh, have, are graduating from their, finishing their school year, that uh, they go into the next level of ministry. And so uh, we do that on June 3rd this year. But to celebrate that on June 2nd, we have our student ministry, our children's ministry, and another ministry in the church, which we call Family Group. These three ministries are uniting to have a picnic next Saturday. And that picnic is going to be from uh, 1 to 3 o'clock. And this is a great time if you have kids and you go to this church, it's a great time for you to meet some other families with children. And I just encourage you to, to come to this if at all possible. And, and I want to take a moment and highlight family group itself. Family group meets here at the church every Wednesday night at 630. And there is child care. And so what family group is, it's like a house group, but it meets here at the church uh, for ease of child care. So that the parents can um, have their ch- ch- children lovingly cared for while they they have a time together with other adults just to worship and uh, honor God and, and get to know other people better. So if you're not part of that and, and you have a family with kids, this is a great, great time for you to uh, step into that. Second thing, there's another a big thing happening on June 9th, and that's a timeout for moms. Read about that in the program. June 9th is a Saturday. And what mothers don't need some time out? Well, they all do. I know that. Um, we all know that. Now, the last thing I want to talk to you about is our Living Water Summer Camp. And this is our children's ministry camp. 
And last year, it was incredibly successful. Uh, we had a great turnout of kids. And we had over 20 children that opened their hearts to receive Jesus. First time they did that, they opened their hearts to receive Jesus at the summer camp. And this year, we're looking for even a, a bigger, more exciting, more powerful camp and more kids to come to know Jesus. And I, I mean, how many of you were impacted at a camp? In some way, like I went to Boy Scout camp as a kid. We didn't learn about Jesus there, but it really impacted my life. And, and for many of us here, your life was impacted through a camp, either as a child or a teenager or an adult. And so I just encourage you, if you have kids, tap into that, uh, register the deadlines coming soon. And just for clarity's sake, you have to be completing your second grade year. So if you're completing second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, you can become part of that. All right. So those announcements are made. Pick up a program on the way out so you have the details or you can check the details out on our, our app. Right now, what I want you to do is stand up and let's uh, give it up for Luke Hazelmeyer, who's going to come and give the message. Come on up, Luke. Wow, I like that. That's good. Yeah. So again, my name is Luke. So happy to be with you all this morning. I want to start off with a question. Have you ever tried to do something before that you weren't prepared for and then it didn't turn out so well? Raise your hand if that's been you at some point in your time, okay? How about someone next to you? Have you ever known, known them to do something that they did not prepare for, that did not do so well? So a couple of years ago, I learned how to play the piano. I learned drums and percussion when I was in sixth grade and then acoustic guitar right in the beginning of college. But I learned piano about two years ago and I um, barely knew a lot. I didn't know a ton, but since I'd played other instruments, it kind of made it easier for me to pick it up. Anyways, um, May comes, I learned in March, so it's been just like two months. And we have this special event happening here honoring a guy named Steve Shogren. Any of you guys know Steve? So Steve, he, was, he planted a vineyard, another vineyard in the area, and um, has really influenced all the vineyards in Cincinnati. And so we were ha- he's gone now. I think he's in Florida or California or something. But we were having him come back here to have a night just to honor him. And so 500 people fill up this auditorium, which makes it completely packed. And I'm a part of the worship team. And Tyler, our worship leader here, he's just such an empowering leader. He actually lets me play piano, which was a risk for him that did not pay off well, as you'll find out later. (laughs) So here I am, two months in, uh, playing piano. And for the like first song of the set, we're going to do a worship song called King of My Heart. You probably heard of it. And this song, it actually starts off with like this, it's not really a piano solo, but you might as well call it that. This like piano part where you don't really hear anything else. So I'm two months in and I learn it for about 20 minutes. I'm like, yeah, I got this. I've been doing worship music forever. And so I'm going to start off this song with this piano solo, piano part. Um, in front of 500 people and uh, playing in front of 500 people is nerve wracking enough, but about half of those people were pastors at this event, which took it to a whole new level. So 
here we come out and I'm sitting at the piano. I'm looking around the room and it's full. And I recognize all these different pastors. There's Dave Workman. There's Barry Long. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So my hands are sweating. I'm like afraid my fingers are going to fall off the keys. My hands are sweating so bad. I'm super nervous. The song starts and it goes really well for about three seconds. (laughs) And then I hit the most sour note you could possibly hit. And I can just feel the brows furrowing of all the pastors and worship leaders in the room looking at me. And so then Tyler starts playing extra loud on the acoustic guitar to like compensate. Then the girl starts singing who was singing the song. And then I play the part two more times and I nail it perfectly both times. But she's singing over top of it so no one hears me. So <laughs> didn't really get to redeem myself. Um, but I had totally not prepared for that part. And then it was a huge embarrassment. Maybe you've experienced that before. I also remember I was not prepared for the level of carpentry skills I'd have to have in buying something from Ikea. Like, I feel like you need a four-year degree to put some of that stuff together. First time I was there, like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. Look at all this cool furniture. It's affordable. I buy something, take it home. Three hours later, I'm still rearranging it because I put this thing on backwards. I mean, part of it was I went in without the, I don't need the instruction manual. Who uses the instruction manual? But yeah, I was not prepared to spend my entire evening doing that. Um, So maybe you've been in a similar situation. To kind of show you where I'm going with this, the question I want you to think about as we dive into these next four verses of 2 Timothy is this. If God were to speak to you today and tell you he's got some new big ministry opportunity for you, could be something in the church world. Maybe you want to work in a church or do some kind of ministry, parachurch ministry, but maybe it's in the business world. It's a ministry opportunity in the business world or the family world or the entertainment world or the government world, wherever you would get the most pumped to have some kind of kingdom mission. Imagine that God was saying, I'm going to release you into that starting tomorrow. Could you look at the last couple of years of your life and know that you've prepared well for it? When God told you, hey, this is going to be something that I'm going to entrust to you. If you looked back one, two, three years, could you look at your life and honestly say, man, I've prepared really well for this thing that I'm about to get. Or would you look back and say, I don't know if I've prepared well. As you're thinking about that, let's read the text because this is exactly the kind of thing that Paul's talking about in 2 Timothy 2 verses 20 through 23. A whole four verses is what we're going to cover today, but there's a lot of good stuff here. So if you want to read with me, um, go for it. It's going to be on the screen also. Here we go. 2 Timothy 2, 20 through 23. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. So in the first half of this, Paul is talking about vessels or utensils to honor and vessels or utensils to dishonor. So the ones to honor are the gold and silver one, and these are used for really noble purposes. The ones to dishonor are made of wood or earthenware, whatever that is. And 
they had a less honorable purpose. They were used to hold garbage or, or they were an ashtray or something like that. And the phrasing honor and dishonor is kind of strange. It, does, it's, it doesn't really, this particular translation doesn't really translate well into English. So here's another translation I think really gives the idea. This is from the Passion Translation. Used for banquets and special occasions and some for everyday use. So what Paul's talking about here are there are honors, there are um, vessels that can be used for a special kind of noble use and then some that can be used for a more common use. And so uh, he talks about how the qualities of the utensils of honor are that they're sanctified, they're useful to the master, and they're prepared for every good work. So here's kind of the key idea that Paul's getting at. While everyone is equally loved, everybody say equally loved. While everyone is equally loved and valuable to God, say equally valuable. Not everyone is equally useful to God. And this is a tough subject to talk about. This is why I love it that we're going through a book of the Bible without skipping anything. Because it kind of forces us to really go into everything that the Bible says. Especially in, the, in this book of 2 Timothy. And so this is a difficult topic when you're talking about usefulness. It can really bring up insecurities and fears in us. And so I just want to start off by praying. Father, thank you for this part of your word. We celebrate it. We love it. And we just ask in Jesus' name that you come and allow it to sink into our hearts and our minds. That you protect us from any attack of the enemy. And if there are any feelings of inadequacy or feelings of failure or whatever, or incompetence starting to well up, we just rebuke those in the name of Jesus Christ and release your freedom over the whole room. In Jesus' name, amen. So while everyone is equally loved and valuable to God, not everybody is equally useful to God. I want to unpack that phrase and then we'll get on to the second half of the text that we just read. So equally loved and valuable. Let's talk about that. Turn with me to Romans 5. If you want, again, it's going to be on the screen. If we go to Romans five and we're going to read verses six through eight in the passion translation, this is what God says about how he loves us for while we were still helpless. Sorry, this is not the passion translation. That was an error. But anyways, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the NASB. So what's Paul saying here? Basically that a person would only die for something or someone that they perceived as being extremely valuable. Like imagine a bus is flying down a street going about 50 miles per hour. And imagine that there's somebody or someone standing in front of it and either the bus is going to hit them or you're going to dive out in front of the bus, shove them, and the bus is going to hit you. Who are the people that you would dive out in front of the bus for? Who are the people in your life where you wouldn't even think? It's like automatic. No, I would give myself for them. And then think about how much you love those people. That is how much God loves you is what this passage is saying. He loves you so much that he would die for you. The greatest act of love that God ever committed was on your behalf. 
because of how much he loves you. And Jesus, no one can, um, you didn't do anything to compel Jesus to die for you. He did it purely because he loves you. He loves you infinitely, unconditionally, and we are all equally loved and valuable to God. But what this text is saying is that we're not all equally useful to him. And I just want to say a couple things about that. One, some people are more useful to God for a specific purpose or assignment than others. For example, whenever my family would travel to New York, it was a nine-hour drive, I was called the master packer by my mom and dad and my brothers. And basically, how this happened was I was super good at Tetris as a little kid. And I just applied my Tetris skills to packing the back of the van when we would travel to New York. So I would be able to like arrange all of the suitcases and the bags, my mom's toiletry bags and everything so that it like was like no gaps, just this filled up, like literally like Tetris filled up to the top of the back of the van. We wouldn't have to have anything in the cab. And I was really, really good at doing that. I have two younger brothers, Joey and Kyle, and they must have not been so good at Tetris growing up because whenever they would pack the van, it was kind of just like, oh, here's our stuff. Here, 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 here. Big, the leaning tower of Pisa. Stuff would be falling over. We'd open the back of the hat. We'd open the hatch and like stuff would fall out. And so I was always elected the one to pack the van. At first, my parents tried to have a share of the responsibilities, but eventually it was just given to me. And I was fine with it because I actually really enjoy doing it. I don't know why, but I really got this like pleasure out of, if I turn the suitcase this way and flip it upside down, I save six inches of space. Isn't that awesome? <clears throat> so, so yeah, I liked doing that. And sometimes God will use one person instead of another because that person is designed for that particular task. And it's not like my brothers felt like, oh man, uh, dad doesn't love me anymore because he's letting Luke pack the van. It's not like my brothers were, in fact, they didn't want to pack the van. So that's another point. But, but they didn't feel less loved. My dad didn't view them as less valuable just because I was better equipped to do the packing. And the same is true in the kingdom. And what I want to say right now is this. If the idea of someone else being more useful to God than you for a particular task causes a great amount of anxiety or fear to well up in you, it's probably because to an extent you've put your value in what you do for God. You've defined how valuable you are by all that you do for God when you could never do anything more to make him love you more and you could never do anything to make him love you less. Your value is not dictated by what you do for God. And so if you are experiencing that, that's natural. Like, we all go through that from time to time. But I want to encourage you, be ruthless about rooting that out of your heart. Be ruthless about not letting that stay there because it will cause your heart to be hard and it just is, is no good. So, some people more useful to God for a specific purpose or assignment than others. Secondly, usefulness to God is much more about character than it is about talent. Usefulness to God is much more about your heart 
than it is about your skills or the flashy things that you can do. This is why in verse 22, what we read earlier of 2 Timothy, um, Paul, immediately after telling Timothy to be, to strive to be a vessel of honor, he says, flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Those all have to do with character. It is your character that makes you useful to God. It is your heart, the purity of your heart that makes you useful to God. That's why in James 4, James says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now that can sound kind of harsh, like God opposes the proud. Like, what does that mean? Is he going to strike someone down because they have pride? The best analogy that I've heard of this, I think I heard it from Van. I'm not positive where I initially got it from, though, is that God's grace being released is kind of like a, a river. And the river's flowing downstream. When we are acting in pride, what we're doing is we're walking upstream. And so what's happening there, the flow of God's grace, which is in, which flows, if we were to go downstream, we'd be, we would be acting in humility. But when we're acting in pride, we're walking upstream. And so, yeah, the flow of God's grace is coming against us. It's making it hard for us to walk. And what that means is that if you take pride in your talent, if there is an, even a little ounce of you that is taking pride in your skills, then it's going to be, you're significantly compromising your usefulness to God. And it makes it a lot more complicated for God to use you when you're taking pride in those things. And so uh, we got to root pride out of our hearts if we want to be more useful to God. Third thing, those who appear to be useless to people might be deemed the most useful by God. Let's read a passage out of 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about that. It's 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. It's what Paul says. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world Things counted as nothing at all and use them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. What's he saying here? God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things to show that he's an extraordinary God. And so if you're sitting in your chair thinking, well, I don't think I have many skills or talents. I'm probably not going to be that useful. Watch out because God loves to use people like you. You look all throughout the Bible and you see Moses, the guy with the speech impediment. He is the prophet. He is the representative of God to the Israelites. You see Gideon, the coward, who leads God's people in victory in battle. I mean, countless examples. You've got Abram, this random pagan dude who God uses to create his people. Um, David, he wasn't even in the lineup to be chosen and anointed as king. If you know the story... Um, Samuel, the prophet's coming to this guy named Jesse, who's got, I think, six sons, and only five of them are lined up. And the prophet walks up to those five and he says, hey, it's none of these. Do you have any more sons? He's like, well, I've got one, but you'd never choose him. That's the one God chose. So if you 
are hearing this message and you're thinking, man, I'm just an ordinary person, so I'm probably not going to be used by God. Watch out. He's going to use you. That's the kind of person he uses. And I'll also say this. Watch out because he might use you in a way that you are not expecting at all. Like maybe you are an amazing musician. Like that is what you, that's where you say all of your skills are and all of your talents are. And you've really worked hard to be a musician your whole life. And God is, you know, you might expect God to look at you and be like, hey, yeah, I'm going to use you to teach. You're like, no, I hate public speaking. I don't want to be in front of people. Like, that's the worst. It's like, well, I'm going to use you how I want to use you. And so that, yeah, so that verse um, where Paul is saying that uh, God chooses those that the world deems nothing in order to bring to nothing those who think that they are important. That is so true. You see it time and time again. And so don't think about your usefulness to God as he's only going to use me in that which I've really worked hard to be good at. Fourth, your usefulness to God is directly tied to your intimacy with God. John 15, 5 says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so intimacy with God is the foundation for what is our our usefulness. If you are living a life cultivating intimacy with God, hearing his voice, learning to hear it more clearly, digging into scripture in order to to love Jesus and know Jesus more, that is what makes a person useful in God's eyes. And so uh, last thing I want to say about usefulness is this. God in his grace might take someone who hasn't made themselves useful at all and make them useful. Think about the Apostle Paul. Before the Apostle Paul was Paul, he was Saul. And when he was Saul, he spent all of his time murdering Christians and bringing them and putting them in jail. And as he was on his way to a new city to do that even more, Jesus met him and told him, I'm going to use you to bring my name before kings. Paul, he, Saul, he wasn't doing anything to make himself useful. He was doing everything he could to make himself useless to the kingdom of God. In fact, he was harming the kingdom of God. But God is a gracious God. That's the God that we serve. And so he decided, nope, I'm going to choose him. Well, God, what about being a vessel of honor and blah, blah, blah? No, I'm going to choose him. And so this is what I want us to hear. Maybe um, it can be easy. This is what I want to say. It can be easy to get offended when God does this with somebody. Especially for all of us who've been going to church for years after years. We've been given faithfully. We have our quiet time every single day. We are, you know, we are the model Christians. And then there's this person that's just been wrecking their life for the last 10 years. And then God's like, oh, I'm going to use them. We can get offended, right? Jesus talks about this principle in one of his parables. I don't have, this is the prodigal son. I don't have time to go totally into it. But basically, man had two sons. One rebelled and wasted a lot of money. The other one stayed faithful and loyal to the father. And then the rebellious one comes back um, repenting. And the father, instead of punishing him, throws him like this massive party. Bigger than any party that's ever been thrown. And while the father was celebrating and blessing 
the fact that the rebellious son had come back. The elder brother was bitter and threatened, offended by the fact that his father would bless and celebrate this rebellious son who had cost them a lot of money. And so in the parable, the father looks at the elder brother as he comes and voices his complaints and says, son, everything that I have is yours. Don't forget, this is all yours. He already spent his share. This is all yours. But your brother who was dead is now alive. He who was lost is now found. When somebody who, do, who did not earn the blessing or favor that God puts on their life, when someone didn't earn that and we look at them, we have either the opportunity to be a father or to be an elder brother or, other, or elder sister. We can either celebrate the blessing and celebrate the promotion that God is putting on someone who didn't earn it, or we can be threatened by it and jealous and angry and bitter about it. And here's a dangerous thing about hardening. It's what we're doing is we're hardening our heart towards that person. Here's a dangerous thing about it. When we harden our heart towards someone who just experienced the undeserved grace of God, we are hardening our heart towards God's grace. And so the next time God wants to promote us or God wants to bless us and we don't deserve it, our heart has been continually getting harder and harder from it. It's going to make that a lot more complicated. And so we have to learn to always celebrate when God promotes and celebrates someone else. Because we're really, yeah, we're agreeing with God when we do that. We're disagreeing with God when we resist in our hearts the promotion he's putting on somebody else. And so again, I want to encourage you, if, you're, if you experience that, I mean, we all experience that, if you do, be ruthless about rooting that out of your heart. Because in doing that, you're actually opening up yourself to receive more of God's undeserved blessing and grace and favor. So, with all that said, I wanted to go through those five points. Because what we see then is that God, because he's a God of grace who often ignores human limitations, he might still use us even if we haven't done a single darn thing to make ourselves useful to him. Okay? But those who cultivate intimacy with him and grow in character make themselves more useful to God than they were before. And so we really have a choice. We can do whatever we want and hope that God's grace shows up. And so kind of like the way I think about it is, okay, God's got this moment in time when he is going to release this like promotion and blessing on our life. Leading up to it, we can either be running away from God or running towards God. It's our choice. And I don't know about you guys, but I want to be someone who's running towards God and preparing myself for everything he does, not having to have him prepare me in spite of how I've been living. So that's what Paul talks about in terms of vessels of honor and um, ordinary vessels. But then in the second half of the passage we read, he kind of talks about how do you actually become that useful, prepared vessel for God. And so the first thing he says in verse 21 is cleanse yourself. And then from, and he lists off a bunch of things. And that's kind of an interesting, weird concept, like cleanse yourself. I thought God did the cleansing. And so what does that mean? I think really it could mean three things. One is that Paul's saying, yeah, cleanse yourself for God. Or you could be, or, you know, a second way that 
you can understand cleansing is, nope, God's going to do it totally for you, and you don't got to do anything. And then the third way that I would believe is the right way is God wants to partner with you to cleanse you. So there's his part and there's your part. There's a part that only God can do. And there's a part that you have to do when it comes to that cleansing. And as I read through the scriptures, like this is the dominant theme is that God will do things for us, but he would much rather do things with us. And so partner with God to be cleansed. And what in this section, Paul defines cleansing yourself as fleeing youthful lust and pursuing righteousness. Flee lust and pursue righteousness. Let's start with flee lust. Flee means flee, not fight. God is not saying fight lust. He's saying flee lust. And we, kind of, we get this better in the natural world. I mean, how many of you have ever fought, uh, fought instead of fleed a swarm of angry bees? Anybody? How'd it go for you if you did? Or if you're coming back from a hike and you walk up to your camp and there's a grizzly bear in your tent, how many of you are going to go fight it instead of flee it? We get it. It makes sense in, when we put it in those terms. But so often in our sin struggles, many of us get pummeled by temptation because we choose to fight when we need to flee. And so um, the bear and the bee metaphor actually goes one step further. Sometimes when we um, have temptations, they are just too big for us to be able to handle. Kind of like a grizzly bear. They're bigger, they're stronger, they have sharper weapons, they're more ferocious. We don't stand a chance. And I think about, I've had friends who've struggled with substance abuse and those temptations, those struggles are just too big for them to fight it at all. They will lose. You know, one drink can send a person, boom, all the way back down to the gutter. But then the bees is a different kind of temptation that we still shouldn't fight. So with the bees, one bee is, I mean, I don't like it when there's a bee in the room. I'm like, if there is one, I'm like watching him get my shoe out, trying to kill it. But one bee we can probably handle. But the thing about bees is that when there's a swarm of them, there's no way you could fight them all off. In the same way, sometimes this is what our temptation looks like. This uh, image we don't want to see pops up on our computer. We look at it instead of not looking at it. Then the next day, we are really tired because we didn't sleep the night before. And then we get into a fight with our significant other. And then someone says something rude to us at work. And all of these things culminate in us um, failing. And so um, really all, both of those examples, the way to avoid falling into them is to flee instead of try to fight them all. And so there's a number, he calls them immature or youthful lusts. It's kind of like lusts that people deal with, especially when they're first coming into adulthood. So the first obvious one is flee sexual immorality. Don't fight it, flee it. When you're watching a movie and a scene pops up and there's sexual content, we shouldn't be sitting there thinking, okay, I'm going to be a really strong Christian and watch it without getting affected. No, turn it off, fast forward if you're in a theater, I don't know, close your eyes, plug your ears, do whatever it takes to flee it. Or if social media, Instagram or Facebook, if you struggle with pornography and you are on Instagram and on in, being on Instagram actually leads you to struggle with porn or whatever, don't try to be like, okay, I'm a strong enough Christian 
to have an Instagram and not look at porn. No, delete it. Like, Paul's pretty clear here. Don't try to fight it. Flee it. Also, there's, um, you know, if you find yourself having sexual attraction with someone who's not your spouse, and you, you, know, you didn't, maybe you didn't ask for it, but it's there. God is not telling you, okay, well, keep the same level of interaction and connection with them and just really tough it out because you're a good Christian. No, get away from that. Do whatever it takes to cut as much of that interaction out of your life as you can. And if even work, say it's at work, if even working in the same building is too much, then quit your job. Like, it's pretty clear here. We are to flee lust, not try to fight it. Other lusts that, other, other these kind of immature youthful lusts, flee the love of power. So if you realize, wow, I actually get pleasure from being over people. I get pleasure from telling people what to do. I get pleasure from trying to control people. Flee that. A great way to do this is to have an accountability partner, somebody in your life that you can say, hey, I want you to ask me every week, every day, if need be, how are you doing with the temptation for power? There's also uh, the lust of status. You know, do you really get a lot of pleasure and, and just your identity out of people really thinking you're somebody? If that's the case, maybe you shouldn't share your latest and greatest God story the next time you're in a group of people. Do whatever it takes. Flee these lusts. Don't fight them. There's also the love of money, the lust for attention and affection, the lust for success. Flee those. And then the other, the counterpart of that is pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And pursue means pursue. Don't ask. If you want intimacy in your relationship with God, don't just sit on a couch and be like, God, give me intimacy. No, chase after it. Pursue it. Go after it with everything that you have. That's what Paul's saying here. Be assertive in your relationship with God. Also, pursue means run, don't walk. If you, know, if you know there's apathy in you, if you're like, I'm just not as passionate as I was however many years ago, get around some passionate people. Do whatever it takes to get that fire lit again. I know when I am like getting apathetic in a certain part of my walk with the Lord, there are friends that I have that I know are passionate about that. I want to get around them. Pursue also, it means to long for, it means to chase, but don't strive. We fall into the trap of striving when we are doing things for God, when we're pursuing God in order to feel valuable. And that's never what God wants us to do. Pursue, yes. Chase, yes. But don't let your value or your identity get wrapped up in it. Do it because you love him, not because you are trying to get him to love you. So, when I was in third grade, I decided I wanted to follow my dad's footsteps and start wrestling. And if you really knew me, you'd know that at Corrine High School, I sat the bench on the football team and quit my freshman year. But I was a state qualifier in wrestling, and so that was the sport that I was really good at. But starting off, I was not good at all. And it was embarrassing because my dad had been a part of a state championship wrestling team. And so I like felt this pressure to fall in his footsteps and I wasn't third grade, fourth grade. I'm losing just about every match. 
And the reason for that is I uh, was a tall and skinny, lanky kid. And so it was easy for the shorter, stockier guys to get a hold of me. And I was not quite as quick as they were. And they had a little more upper body strength. And so I was just getting pummeled. And I remember this one particular time I had lost, lost, and lost, and I lost again. And I got up from the mat. I was dejected, walked over to my dad. And he looks at me like, Dad, I don't want to do this anymore. I suck. I'm sick of this. And he looked at me and he said, no, Luke, like you don't suck. You're gonna, you're gonna, you're, you're gonna succeed at this. Just don't quit. Keep trying, keep going. We're going to, we're going to tackle this together. And so I decided to keep going. And about a year later, my dad taught me this move called the cross face cradle. And I actually want to demonstrate this. So could I have one volunteer come up on stage right now? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) People are actually pumped, raising their hand in the back. So, So this move was basically created for somebody like me. Like you could only do it with the success that I would do with it if you had my body type. And so I started pinning kids left and right in the cross-face cradle. And once I got to high school, teams knew when I was coming to their school to wrestle, they knew that that was my move. Like, I like became infamous for it. And they actually had to change. I can't explain to you all the mechanics of it, but basically there's a standard strategy that just about every uh, coach has for their wrestler in a match. And because of the move that I did, whenever I'd go, they would totally change the normal strategy. And so that's as much as I can explain without getting into all the jargon. Um, but anyways, like I was amazing. And I, and I ended up going to the state tournament. Uh, won one match, lost two, which made me place between ninth and 12th. So I tell people ninth place. But really, it was like they didn't. Like, we could have done a couple more matches to figure out the exact, but they only did those for first through eighth. So, ninth place, twelfth place, whatever. Um, but I'm so glad I didn't quit. And in the same way, maybe this morning, either you're becoming aware of it for the first time or you've been aware of it, there's a part of your heart, a part of your mind that God is bringing up saying, hey, we need to work on this. And I just want you to know that God is not looking at you like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're still struggling with that. Like, just like my dad didn't look at me like, wow, yeah, you're right, you do suck, so let's figure it out. He didn't say that. He only looked at me with compassion and the desire to help me grow out of love. And right now, that's how God is looking at you. Maybe there's a lust that you're, you've not been fleeing, that you need, or you've, yeah, that you've been fighting and you need to start fleeing it. God's not looking at you like, oh man, it took you forever to figure that out. He's looking at you with love and compassion. So that's my message. Ushers, I'll invite you to come forward so we can receive the offering. And worship band, you can come out. So if you are on the most left part of your row, if you could just reach down and grab the basket under that chair and pass it. That would be really helpful. And so one of the points that I shared was our usefulness to God is directly related to our intimacy with him. And what we're about to do is worship. And I want to invite all of you, use this time 
take advantage of it to press into intimacy with God. Because it is the number one thing that we can do in order to be a useful vessel to him. So I'll pray and then we'll go into worship. Father, thank you so much for your presence here. Thank you for your compassionate love towards us. Thank you that you're always speaking to us and challenging us and helping us grow. In Jesus' name, I ask that you just release grace and blessing over all of us to do what we're called to do. If there's any hard decisions anybody needs to make, I ask, Father, you give them the strength and the boldness to make those decisions. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.